cool. Well, that sounds like fun. Alright. So. I had seltzer. Let's see. Alright, I'm recording on both ends. I am on Audacity. Okay, cool. So we're good. Um, give me just one second. Take your time. Moot. I'm on moot. I do things on moot. Sorry, I'm talking to somebody. So give me, give me just a second. I'm talking to myself, so don't worry about it. Good stuff. Welcome in, welcome in. You are listening to Culture Bop Selects, the official pop culture and media discussion podcast of Culture Bop. I think I said this last week, but it's actually episode 11 this this uh, this episode. And I keep saying week instead of episode. Um, well, yes, we're on episode 11. I am your host, the one and only Bebop man, Josh McMullen. And I am joined today by my co-host for this podcast the one and only skyrise excellence himself justin ruiz one and one and only yeah you're like there is no other skyrise excellence. <laughs> you you're the only one that's it that's it no one can even come close yeah no one else can afford a 80 billion dollar home on long island I just, and there are so many of them too yeah <laughs> Oh man! Well, how's it going? It's good. Everything is good. I'm excited to do, to do another one of these. How are you doing? Uh, about the same. Um, yeah, just just about the same. You know, could be better, could be worse. You know, inflation's killing. Uh, my drive to do anything, ever. But uh, but yes, yes, it's, I'm, li- I'm it's doing actually okay. it's literally killing your drive. <laughs> like getting behind the wheel. Luckily for me, I work from home. Oh, I thought you were gonna say, "Luckily for me, I ride a bike." Oh, you know what? I could ride a bike because I work from home. <laughs> Very nice. Yep. Yep. Uh, so yeah. Um, what you what you been up to since we last recorded? I finished actually Ghostwire Tokyo. Okay. Um, I know last time I said begrudgingly, but yeah, begrudgingly finished it. Um, it was fine. It was okay. It was nothing really to write home about, but um, I picked up a couple of extra trophies 
that I knew I could get just to, for challenge, but uh, it was pretty much it. <clears throat> Thinking about what to get next, now that I know Turtles is out next week, I'm very excited for that. And the other thing that I'm excited for is, I don't know if you saw the trailer for it, Neon White? Uh, I haven't seen the trailer for it yet. Um, I'm planning on catching up on all of the the like Nintendo like Nintendo just did something right. I, the I su- well, the Summer Games Fest, but that but that game is a Switch game. Okay, okay, yeah. So I'm I'm waiting to do that and the PlayStation Showcase and and all that stuff this weekend, so I can just knock it all out at once, as opposed to you know trying to watch it throughout the day while I'm working and other stuff. right, and then get up to speed for the next show, but uh. Yeah, Neon White looks good. That's also out next week. Um, and then we finished Severance on Apple TV Plus, and yes. by golly, that show was very good. Um, I highly implore anybody who's remotely thinking about it to check it out. It is very dark. It is very. Um, it's, there's a lot of mystery to it, and there are a lot of questions that don't get solved. I didn't realize this was getting a second season. But uh, it is a fantastic show with one hell of an ending. That last episode is just absolutely... Every moment is thrilling. Every moment is literally thrilling. Um, I can't sing its praises enough. But yes, yeah, Severance. Check it out. Yeah, it's uh, it's on my list. Uh, we're, um, we watched... Uh, what did... What did uh, Our Flag Means Death. And uh, we're trying to get caught up on uh, This Is Us. Uh, that's a show that Kayla really loved and kind of had me start watching with her. Um, and uh, Barry, we're trying to get caught up on Barry. Uh, oh, I think yeah. the finale for that is what's this Sunday, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we're trying to get caught up on all this other stuff, but Severance is definitely on the list, so we'll get around to it. Ha, I don't, so, so I don't, I'm not watching it, so I don't know the schedule of it, but um, Stranger Things, did you finish that, or was that yes. finished? Okay. Yeah, I, uh, so the, um, the first part of season four is, uh, is finished. The second part, which is just the last two episodes, um, is supposed to be coming july 1st okay so, so i've got a little bit of time to get caught up on other things uh before um uh before that drops so but those two episodes are supposed to be like uh i think an hour and 45 minutes and like two and a half hours oh, so wow. yeah they're basically movies <laughs> so we'll see how how all of that goes um but yeah, that I mean, that's basically what I've been doing is just getting caught up on things with me and Kayla, and then um, uh, the show. Um, no, no games. Yeah, no games. Uh, I've I've played a little bit of Citizen Sleeper, um, which is on Game Pass, and it's uh, it's really interesting. I I'm really enjoying it. It's uh very much like a like a D type thing it's like um v- very inspired by tabletop rpgs okay uh, but um yeah it's all text-based 
It's got some really, really wonderful um, uh, character artwork that kind of pops up when you're talking to people. Um, the actual, like, I guess, like, the quote-unquote actual graphics of the game are, like, <laughs> low-poly, um, like, geometry. Okay. Because uh, it's basically just like a like a space station that you're looking at the entire time. Um, and then it's uh, these... It's all text-based. Um, I haven't run into any uh, combat so far. Uh, most of the stuff that I've done, I've I've avoided combat. But um, I have a feeling I'm going to run into that pretty soon. Uh, just because there's a little, like, clock mechanic to some of the uh, items that you're supposed to do. And one of the ones that's running right now for me is uh, I think that I'm being tracked by someone. And that clock is, like, kind of ticking down. And once it hits zero, I suppose, uh, I, I, I guess I'm going to be... Um, you pull out a gun. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have someone who's, like, on my ass. So, um, cool. yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, I, I'm enjoying it. I really like uh, D&D and tabletop role-playing games. So, like, this is right up my alley. Wow, that's that sounds really cool. I, I the one game that's on Game Pass now that I, I do not have Game Pass, so I'm not able to play it. But it is coming to PlayStation soon. Is Tunic? Uh, I think it's September, so I'm excited to jump into Tunic. But uh, it's Citizen Sleeper sounds really cool. Yeah, I I recommend it, uh, or I recommend it based on what I've played so far. It it might turn into a complete and utter shit show, but. Uh, I, I like what I've played so far. So, can I do the pivot here? Take it away, buddy. Can I do the... Can I do the... Because I think... It sounds like you and I are ready to sink our teeth into this one. Oh, my God. I know. You're just... You're the worst. The absolute I'm worst. The best <laughs> at being the worst. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we're, um, I mean, like I s- said last week, uh, if you haven't noticed already by the, the thumbnail of this episode, we're going to be talking about Jaws. Um, it's swimming towards you right now. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, it is taking place during, like, the July 4th weekend, so we thought, you know, maybe we'd, we'd get ahead of it just a little bit, you know. Uh, but yeah, so we're talking about Jaws, and I mean, the first question I've got for you is, what is your first memory of this movie? I saw this movie later in life. Um, I didn't see it as a kid, uh, but I do remember seeing it, and I do remember being like, good lord, this movie was pretty damn scary. Um, and I, I remember, I mean, naturally I remember being like, frightened of it because anything coming from the ocean that's big enough to swallow a person is just terrifying <laughs> but uh it definitely was one of those things of you you have it in the back of your head of oh my god there are creatures out there that are just you know literal sea monsters um but yeah i did see it later in life and i and i do remember really really enjoying it and getting very into like the lore of jaws um which there is kind of a lot of like backstory and 
and there's nuance to that movie in a way that's more than just like the shark killing people, um, <clears throat> which is fun. I think that's the, one of the funner, the, the the more fun parts of the movie. But uh, I I do remember enjoying it and and being like naturally terrified of it the first time I saw it. But I I don't remember what age I was. It was definitely closer in my teens when I really saw like front to back Jaws. Uh, I wasn't really one who watched a lot of horror movies as a kid. I think I told you this, like, the the worst horror movie I saw as a kid was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, that was terrifying to me. But, I mean, Christopher Lloyd at the end of that movie still haunts me. Like, uh, he's yeah. just, oh, oh God. Um, but, yeah, how about yourself? When did you first experience this dread? Yeah, uh, I... I very distinctly remember the first time that I watched it. I, I can't tell you how old I was, but uh, I was at my grandparents' house, <laughs> running theme, um, and there was uh, Happy Days playing at one point, and it was on uh, it was on TBS, and we were getting ready for I, I want to say church. Um, it might have been for something else, but I know we were getting ready for something. And so, uh, Happy Days goes off, and then Jaws starts playing. And while everyone's kind of, like, eating breakfast, and, like, everyone's, like, getting ready for other things, um, I'm sitting there just watching this movie about a shark that eats people. <laughs> and, uh, I, I remember really enjoying it, but also being terrified by it. And so, I didn't really, like... I think come back around to it until I was probably a teenager. And I think I bought the, either the DVD or the Blu-ray. It was like the like 30th anniversary edition or something like that. It was like 2005. Yep. I remember that. And so I was like, okay, I, you know, this is, this is what people consider an all time classic. It's one of Spielberg's first movies. And I was like, at that time I was like all about Spielberg, just like, wanting to know everything about like him and like all of his movies and stuff like that. So I bought it and that was when I kind of like revisited it as an adult. But like that first, uh, that first viewing was definitely like me as like probably a six or seven year old and watching it on TBS. Fun stuff. <laughs> not fully. Yeah. Right. Not fully grasping everything about it. Probably. Oh yeah, for sure. Like there are definitely things in here that like I because I rewatched it uh, before we started recording, or not before we started recording, but for this recording, and um, like there are a lot of like adult jokes and like oh yeah, like things that just like really went over my head as a as a kid. Like I remember um, like they say something about peach brandy in this. And I just thought, like, that they were, like, when they were drinking around the, um, the sort of, like, dinner table or whatever. Like, you know, at, like, the, probably, like, three-quarter of the way point of the movie. In the, like, in the cabin, were, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought that they were just kind of, like, sitting there and, like, you know, being friendly with one another. But, like, no, they're drunk. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just something that I never, like, understood as a kid. A lot of it, it's funny because you mentioned that um, the 
the mayor watching that movie like as an adult you realize like one of the people in that movie that's absolutely terrible is the mayor oh, yeah. <laughs> who's like who's like i'm not letting summer i'm not canceling summer <laughs> yeah yeah right which is like, uh which is kind of funny. absolutely insane like y- y- so you're gonna like not like let people live because y- tourism i don't know <laughs> The town of Amity will stay open. Yeah. Oh, speaking speaking of uh, this, so a- Amity is supposed to take place in New York, and they mentioned Long Island and the Hamptons by name. Is Amity a real place? There is an Amityville. Oh, okay. Um, so it's not necessarily that because that's not not really on like the water. It's on the bay. It's yeah, not on yeah. the ocean. That's that's the difference. Um, which is funny because they they keep they mention New York, but um, I know the movie was filmed in Martha's Vineyard. Um, yeah, and it is an island. It's Amity. It's like Amity, quote unquote, Amity Island. But um, yeah, it it very much gives the vibe of like out east, like a Montauk type town, like a beach resort. Very f- and and Montauk back. In the day, um, not so much now, but back in the day, was much more of a bring your family kind of place, right? Where it's um, the cheaper and cheerier version of going to the Hamptons, where if you had a couple of bucks, you would go to the Hamptons. But if you were doing day trips or, you know, kind of doing maybe maybe even live like camping, doing camping, you'd go out to Montauk. But mm. Yeah. Both those areas, both of those those parts of of Long Island are big fishing spots, right? It's there it's right on the tip of the ocean, so you have great great areas to go um like striped bass fishing and things like that. So they're both um they're both really good good from like a sport fisherman kind of thing and even just kind of bringing in fresh catch for restaurants and stuff like that. So it's cool. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so yeah, uh, well, while, while we're kind of like talking about that, I guess we should kind of talk about like some of the, the backstory and like the, the pre-production sort of history of, of the movie. And I I think the best place to start is talking about Spielberg up to this point. So obviously we talked about him a little bit last week, but we didn't go into, into depth on him. But um, how how much about like early Spielberg do you know? Oof, uh, that's a good question. I not not too much. I mean, I know that this was sort of one of his, I guess you'd call it breakout movies, yes. right? And I know I I think more on the technical side of things, and this is something that we can get into later. But I I do remember he sort of not like that he stepped in it in a good way, but I do remember the stories about how the, the mechanical shark was a complete nightmare to work with. And it actually ended up being, it worked in his advantage because they just couldn't show much of it. And that kind of built a lot of the dread around it, but it, 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 I think helped him educate a lot of what he wanted to do from like a filmmaking perspective. But that's sort of where my knowledge is, is him this early on in his career. But 
I would love to hear your thoughts okay. on him early on. Yeah, yeah. So um, he got his first job uh, working um, f- for the 1969 um, show Night Gallery, which was written by Rod Sterling. Uh, or Sorry, I say Sterling every time, but it's Serling. Um, do you know who Rod Serling is? Educate me. Rod Serling is the creator and host of The Twilight Zone. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, he got his first uh, directorial gig working on one of the segments for the pilot episode of Night Gallery, which, uh, like I said, was uh, written by uh, Rod Serling. Was he also the voice? Was he the narrator? Yes. Yes, yes. that's right. Yeah. Um, and so while he was working on uh, on that um he was still really young and inexperienced and they kind of like let him just like kind of like try to hone his his like camera work and stuff like that and he tried to impress people with like fancy movements and stuff like that people were like no you 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 can't do that you gotta like you gotta go you gotta you gotta get this stuff done whatever so a little like follow the rules yeah yeah, so he he took that knowledge and started working as a TV director. Uh, he worked on stuff like, um, I mean, I don't know some of these shows, but like uh, I know Columbo. He directed some episodes of Columbo. He worked on Marcus Welby, MD, uh, The Name of the Game, um, The Psychiatrist. Like it, some of these, like I, like I said, I've I've never heard of before in my life, but. Um, he directed those and uh, kind of like honed his craft. And based on the strength of his work, he was signed to Universal to do four television movies. And the first of those was Duel, which was actually based on a Richard Matheson short story. Um, Richard Matheson, uh, in case you are unaware, is the guy who wrote um, The Last Man on Earth. Okay. Uh, which was, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's the basis for um, the Omega Man and I Am Legend. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but I, I think that that's the case. Anyway, so uh, so yeah, and the movie was, uh, was pretty well received by uh, the studio. Everyone seemed to like it, and... Uh, so um, he went on to do something evil and savage. Both of those weren't as good. They didn't, you know, whatever. But he was able to turn that out into the Sugarland Express, um, which is about a married couple on the run uh, trying to regain custody of their baby from foster parents. Um, this was uh, pretty well received. Um, and there were people who were like uh, in the Hollywood reporter, someone that was like uh, a major new director is on the horizon talking about Spielberg. And uh, even though it wasn't a commercial success, they decided to give him another shot with jaws, uh, which is, you know, where we're at now. Um, And so in 1970, well, I don't think it was shot in 75. I think it was actually shot in 74 which would have been around the same time that the uh, the book was coming out. And like you were saying earlier, 
they had a lot of stuff uh like go wrong for them during the the making of this like the the mechanical or the mechanical shark would break down all the time at one point uh Spielberg almost drowned and was almost caught between two ships and crushed to death um like it was a very hard shoot and it uh went 104 days over uh schedule and went massively over budget and almost killed Spielberg's career <laughs> which is really really fucking funny uh if I, I mean if you consider where he is now right like everyone's like oh Spielberg one of the greatest of all time or whatever but like he almost didn't have a career because of how bad the shooting on Jaws went and I think the one thing that people don't quite realize is you know they <laughs> this is a mechanical shark it's also salt water. Yeah. <laughs> so salt water, if you don't un- if you don't know this, if you're unfamiliar, it basically kills everything. Unless you unless you can survive in salt water, salt water will kill everything. Electrical, whatever it is. In fact, um, spoiler alert here or what, you know, however you want to say this, but like in her or Superstorm Sandy, whatever you want to call it, Hurricane Sandy, uh over here in New York, a lot of cars got flooded because the water level went so high. And once the salt water touched the engine, dead. The car was, you know, the cars were basically yep. dead. So salt water destroys every so. So it's it's a miracle that they were able to get a lot of the stuff to actually work. Yep. Even yeah. even as much as it did. I it kind of amazes me, and I think you can tell like. Uh, some of the stuff near the end of the movie when they drop uh, Richard Dreyfus in the um, in the cage, you know, they have some what seems to be stock footage from I, I don't know someone probably like the National Geographic or, or some sort of documentary or something like that of like an actual Great White because at that point like they couldn't afford any more like breakdowns and stuff like that with the sharp pairs or anything. Yeah. Right. But yeah, it was, uh, really, I think what you said really, uh, kind of, um, nailed it. I think, I think that a lot of it actually works in the movie's favor. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was filmed in Martha's vineyard, uh, like you said, and, uh, the, um, the filming lasted from May 2nd of 1974 all the way to the end of 1974. I, I don't know how to do math. To December, like December-ish. Okay, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, and yeah, and then it obviously released in the summer of 1975. Um, Universal a lot of summers. <laughs> right? Uh, apparently Universal spent $1.8 million in marketing, uh, including 700000 on national television spot advertising, which at the time was, like, a gigantic deal. Um, like, TV was still kind of, like, coming about. Like, it, it came about in the 50s and then it kind of exploded in the 60s, but it was still, like, not everyone paid attention to TV sort of thing um but yeah 
comes out in 1975, and it's the highest grossing movie of that year, uh, and is still considered one of the highest grossing movies of all time. At its, uh, let me see, where did I see that at? It was like $450 million, I think. $472 million at the box office, which in 1975 money, I think, translates to make it like still somewhere in the top 20 highest grossing movies of all time. Close if you adjust to for inflation. Yeah, close to half a billion How, at this like, point. That's so crazy. 50 years, over 50 years ago, whatever it is, it's, you know, it's, you're talking a long, long time. Um, yeah. I may have 50, but yeah, you're talking a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, and then not only was it like a commercial success, uh, it was very well received by critics uh, going on to uh, win three Academy Awards and being nominated for, uh, I think it was five. Uh, I'm not sure, but um, but yes, uh, it was um, very well received all the way around. So uh, good, good stuff, man. Good stuff. <laughs> A fantastic film. Yeah, uh, so let me ask you this. We'll start, uh, you know, going into the, the filmmaking um, part of this. The The script was written by Peter Benchley and Carl uh, Gottlieb. Please, for, Gottlieb. Please forgive me. Um, uh, my, my question to you uh, is, is twofold. Uh, the first, well, not twofold, but like I have two questions. The first one is this. Does this make any sense to you? I know we joked about the mayor earlier, but like, does the plot of this actually kind of make any sense? That's a good question. Yes, I think. Mm -hmm. Although I don't know. Well, it's 1975. So calling the sheriff instead of like animal control or. I guess they do call a marine biologist, but, you know, calling somebody that could theoretically stop this monster from, you know, causing any more terror. I, I don't know if I would call the sheriff because <laughs> I don't know if it's technically a crime, but, um, yeah, the plot just seems a little like there's a problem. How do we fix this? And then that's kind of it. Right? And yeah. then they seemingly fix the problem, but it's very straightforward. It's just very much like there's something in the water. It's killing people. How do we stop this thing from killing people? Yeah. And throughout the entirety of the movie, it's there's continuous, there's more and more problems that happen. And the people that are around continue to, they either do one of two things. They either get extremely paranoid and frightened of it, or in some cases, they just ignore it and continue going on about their day. But uh, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on the plot? I mean, is it, is uh, it deeper than that? <laughs> well, so my my first thought was was that, um, yeah, everything makes sense. You know, you've got a shark attack. You know, you've they've got to go up against. Uh, you know, a, for lack of a better term, like a supernatural force, and then they go and they take it out. But, like, also, to a certain extent, it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. The mayor is, like, almost, like, 
mustache villain or mustache twirling villain where cartoonish he, yeah 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 very cartoonish where he's like uh yeah no we're gonna we're gonna keep it open regardless of whether or not there's a shark out there that's gonna fuck everybody up like what <laughs> what are you talking about do you think like close the beaches <laughs> Uh, and, and there are also, uh, like, little things that, like, don't necessarily make sense. Like, they, um, the shark is supposed to be, like, 25 feet long, right? Uh, I think is what they say near the end of the movie. Yes. And, um, like, he gets into, like, this little body of water they call a pond. I And I know that it's not, like, actually a pond and it's still, like, attached to the ocean or whatever, but, like... It, nobody sees this thing like the, some of it is kind of like uh, it's a suspension of disbelief thing but it like to an extent doesn't make any sense like how is no one noticing this gigantic shark that's swimming underneath children in like less than 10 feet of water it, like, there, so you're 100 percent right and like if a shark gets like shark that big gets caught in a cove like a small little cove probably good odds that that thing's not getting out yeah right <laughs> like like it might be stuck there so yeah you know at that point then you could i at that you don't you don't go fishing you you know throw sticks of live dynamite at it or something i don't know what right. you do but like yeah i can see what you're saying yeah and to your point and- about the I, I would say the other thing to to your point about the mayor it's definitely if you've ever talked to anybody who's from like a beach community that you know, or like a summer community, they will tell you very straightforward. We only have three months to make our money. That's it. You know, like, so I could understand where the mayor's like, you keep those stores open. You keep the beach. Open. Like I get that. But also I would expect somebody to come up and say like, no, you have to close the beach. <laughs> People are dying. Right. Like, Oh, and another thing, like, there was one part that, like, I, I was actively laughing at. And, and like, I want to make it clear real quick. I don't think that any of this actually ruins the movie for me at all. Like, it's just, it's little nitpicks, right? But there's a scene where, like, I understand what the uh, what the the mayor is saying. But when he's like, you know, I don't want to be here when you guys cut this open. And that little boy falls out on the, on the thing because they're trying to prove that this is the actual shark or whatever. I I totally 100% get his point. But also at the same time, the dude's just trying to shut down the entire thing. He's trying to shut down cutting the shark open entirely, which I'm like, well, what? why not just like cut it open later so then you can do the autopsy? <laughs> like, what? why are you forbidding the police chief and this, this shark researcher from like, making sure that this is the shark that killed the little boy. I don't know. It just seems so insane to me. Yeah. It's yeah. Um, the other question that I had for you was I, I wanted to see, this was something that I, I got actually this, uh, this watch, um, that I don't know that I had necessarily, uh, thought about before. Um, but, he, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, what am I saying? What am I saying? That's he not what being I, what guy? No, 
No, I wasn't talking about – that wasn't the question I wanted to ask you. I just – I was looking at something else, and my brain got completely deflected. Um, no, what I was going to ask you is – so the movie is about two hours long. Uh, it's like a little bit over two hours with, like, you know, some, like, credits and stuff at the very beginning mm-hmm. uh, and at the end. But – so if we cut it right down the middle – you have basically everything that happens with the sheriff and everybody on land, and then you get into the second half of the movie, and it's him on the boat with Hooper and Quint. And I don't think I think that everything works cohesively with the script. Like it all makes sense to me. To I mean, you know, to an extent. Like there are things that obviously, like I was just pointing out, don't make any sense. But like. From a from a plot progression standpoint, everything makes sense. But like, did you notice that they are almost like two movies crammed into one? I, I I sort of anticipated the question when you brought that up. Like, of like, does this feel like two different things? Um, yeah. In a way, yeah. Like, I think the the not that I would want to call the back half like an action movie and the first half like a horror movie, but they do seem a little I'll say this there's there's a part of this movie or there's a half of this movie that I very much enjoy there's another half of this movie that I don't like nearly as much and I think you probably know what I'm I'm talking about I think the back half of this movie is more entertaining than the first where I I, I get that the first half of the movie is setting up how terrifying this this animal is versus mm-hmm. the back half of it it's like well like we're gonna you know we're gonna put our heads together and we're gonna take this thing down like that there's sort of that um that that move forward to do that but yeah i, I agree with you on this i do feel like there's sort of two different different frameworks going on here with this one movie yeah yeah for sure and i think that um uh, I think that some of the um, some of that is also kind of like in in the book itself. Like I, I feel like the book is is very nearly split up into two halves. Like the the first half where everything's happening on the on the uh, island, and you know they're they're setting up the eventual like Moby Dick story that takes place in the second half. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't think that it necessarily is a bad thing. It was just something that I noticed this, this go around. Yeah. Um, and, and so speaking of the, the, the kind of like themes, um, you know, I said that like the second half of this is like Moby Dick, uh, type thing. Uh, was there like any one overarching, uh, sort of like thematic element that stood out to you because I, I do think that like, especially in, in that last half, it is very much like a, uh, a movie about obsession uh, because you, you take a look at like what Quint's entire story is and like it, it's, you know, him being obsessed with the shark, but like it doesn't work in the first half, like, because I don't think that there's anything that kind of like shows showcases that element over the, 
over the entire runtime. Does that make sense? Yeah, he's like barely in the first half of the movie. Yeah, like, I think he has one scene. Yeah, he's got that one scene where he he just explains that there's no way this is anything other than a shark attack, right? Like, and that something needs to be done. But then he that he then shows up like White Knight at the end of the movie to say like I'm gonna take this thing down. Right. But, um, yeah, I guess obsession is, is a way to describe it. I mean, I don't really see anything other than, like, you know, people going out and trying to stop something that seems unstoppable would, would mm-hmm. be one of the themes. I mean, like, overcoming adversity, I guess. But for the most part, I, I guess it's just, it's, it's just entertaining to me. Like, it's just an entertaining concept of, you know, let's conquer our fears of the deep which can be crazy if you think about it. You know, there, there are a lot of, you, you can't see anything down there. There's a lot going on. Um, and it can happen at any moment. I mean, maybe the theme is that everyone should just get a bigger boat. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I, my, my takeaway from, from this, if I'm trying to, if I'm like trying to, uh, imbue some sort of meaning into it because uh, I, I think to an extent you're you're definitely right. I, I think that this is one of those movies that is just kind of like entertaining, but I do think that uh, there is a little bit of uh, a, a little bit of commentary about like not letting um, not letting fear consume you because I think that that's what kind of happens with Quint, right? Like. Quint is completely consumed by his fear and hatred of of the sharks from his time in the Navy, you know, and the USS Indianapolis, I think, was the name of the ship. And which, is, it, which that was a that really happened. That yeah, that fuck it, crazy. That Absolutely that that, crazy. that tiger sharks actually killed those sailors. Like that actually happened. So like, yeah, for. To, to go into that, and, and I think that speaks volumes to, like, um, to how, like, Robert Shaw told that scene. Like, you really got the sense that he was there. But, um, yeah, yeah it, it, continue. I'm sorry. I, I derailed you for a second. No, no, you're good. You're good. Uh, and, yeah, the, uh, the, the thing is, like, he lets that consume him, where, like, from the very beginning uh, with Brody's character... Uh, you get like hints that he is kind of like afraid of the water. Like you never see him go in the water until the end of the movie. Right. And, uh, and I think there's like little bits of dialogue where like he explains that like he, he's afraid of drowning and like there's other stuff in there, but like um, it kind of is, I, I think like a, like a tale that's about like, not letting fear consume you because by the end he has kind of conquered that fear. He's like sitting in the ocean about to die when he's confronting this shark. I, I don't know. Yeah. And I think it, I think it also speaks volumes that like he's the one who comes the most prepared. Yeah. You know, like he's got the cage, he's got the, all the equipment. And like once they realize that Quint's plan is not going to work, that's when Quint kind of like rolls his eyes. He's like, all right, science boy, like, let's do this. Like, like, let's try it your way. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he does come like you, you can kind of tell that he is afraid of the water cause he'll, he'll get anything that he can use to help him. 
right? He'll use any tool or any piece of equipment to make sure that he's not, that he's prepared, that he can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think, I, I kind of think that that's it. Uh, I was going to ask you if you knew anything about the book, uh, but with like differences between what we saw in the movie versus what's in the book. But I'm going to be honest with you. I, I read the book back in like sixth or seventh grade and I don't remember it all that well. And I could tell you definitively like two things that are different. And that's about it. Is one of them like the fact that there was like a, almost like a mafia type tinge to it. Like there was like almost like a, there was like a crime element to it. I want to say. I don't remember that. Uh, Maybe that that's true. I don't necessarily remember that. What I do remember is um, Brody's wife and Hooper have an affair, which I thought was really weird. And also the uh, the character of Chrissy, who is the girl in the beginning of the movie, actually has a much more involved role through the first like two or three chapters, I, I believe, and then she dies. So, okay. but th- those are the I mean, those are the ones that I remember. Uh, I'm sure that there are other things out there, but. I don't think that it's necessarily anything that we would need to go in depth on. Mm. So, uh, yeah, the, the next thing I wanted to ask about is, uh, if we move over to the sort of like, uh, you know, physical filmmaking side of things, the production design, uh, I don't think that there's much to say about the costumes or the sets, because I think a lot of this was like you said, shot on location. Uh, and the, in terms of, like, the costume design, I don't know that there's much to really talk about here. Yeah, the thing I was going to say is it sure does look like 1970s beach town. You know, right. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> it, like, it definitely has that vibe to it. And, you know, hey, those shorts are really short. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um yeah, I I really like Hooper's uh, use of the of the sort of beanie uh, when he first arrives and how that kind of like very quickly goes Cousteau. out the window. Yeah, <laughs> like the very Jacques Cousteau. Like I'm I'm a marine biologist, you know. Right. <laughs> like the only thing he's really missing is like an ascot, right? Like something like that. But um, yes, that's yeah, that is a good one. That's a good thing to note. And I think Quint, yeah. like, the way Quint looks, he definitely looks oh, very, yeah. like, he's a grizzled fisher. Like, that Primus song was written about him, you know? Like, John the Fisherman is basically, that's who I see when I hear that song. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, but I, I think the the thing I wanted to get into more than anything is, I mean, we kind of already touched on it a little bit, but, like, the the shark itself i i mean when you were talking about it uh obviously it's a mechanical shark but they had like i think four different versions four different models uh that they would use um and i thought that that was really interesting uh i mean at that point you kind of have to have like ba- not just backups but like different versions of it you know like it's 
a 25 foot gray white <laughs> yes so. yeah for sure yeah and uh th- they used them for different things from what i understand like there was one that was like it had its like the bottom parts of it cut out so they could operate things and then they had ones that were like just side views and then one that was like a uh bottom only and the one that was like the bottom only they ended up not even being able to use because of like like you said like the salt water and, and the stuff like that um but yeah my, my one thing that I, I definitely wanted to ask you about this is uh, it's not featured very prominently in the uh in the first probably hour of the movie and I, I don't think you actually get even a really good glimpse at it until about like an hour and 15 um yeah so wh- what are your thoughts on on the shark in particular and I, and I think I, I I'm sure you'll echo this but if, looking back and when you when you say jaws I mean that the, the immediate first thing is the chumming scene um, where Brody's saying, why don't you come down here and chump some of this shit? And Quint, when he's sliding down the, the boat. I mean, that's like, when I think of that shark, that's what I think of. Um, and it's two very fleeting scenes, right? Like, it's it's not like, you know, it's it's not like you're seeing the shark constantly throughout the movie. It's not the yeah. Meg, right? It's not that movie. <laughs> you know, like, which is, you know, ridiculous, of course, but... You, you don't see this thing and, and not seeing it, it, it and you'll I, I, I'm assuming you'll agree with this, but not seeing it builds that sense of dread because yeah. you, your imagination is filling the, the blanks. And oh, yeah, that's the scariest thing of all. But w- what are your thoughts on it? Because I, I the first like when I think of the mechanical shark, I think of those two scenes and I think of. Oh, yeah, exactly how harrowing that thing looks. And the fact that like. You know, it's got those cold, dead eyes, and it's just—it's <laughs> just rows of teeth. Like it really does look, and it's—it's it's a great white. It looks like a great white, but it's just the biggest version you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts? I—I I mean, literally everything you just said is exactly how I feel. Like, I know that some people are like, "Oh, it looks so bad." Whatever. I—I I think that it still really holds, holds up. up. Like. Uh, and I I would say that about a lot of uh, practical effects from like this time frame. Like a lot of people will will I you would not believe this, but I've had very long arguments with people telling me that modern Star Wars looks better than like seventy seven Star Wars because it's not just shitty little puppets. And I'm like, you're wrong. <laughs> like. I, this you, when you hold on a second. You had an argument about Star Wars with someone. I I know I know. Uh, but yeah, it's um like practical effects when used correctly because not all practical effects are created equally. They they're just not. But like right. when they are used correctly, like they are here, I don't think that there's anything better than them. And I I really think that this shark. I uh, I was reading that initially the producers wanted to train a great white shark, <laughs> and uh, and I'm positive that that would have gone very very poorly. 
they just like would they like just hang like a seal like instead of a carrot on a stick it'd be like a baby seal on a stick right <laughs> like, would like just go after how the hell would you even remotely think to like uh, uh whatever um but i i don't know that it would have necessarily worked as well without that mechanical shark and i think that it looks incredible um do you only really see it in maybe like like, 15 minutes of the movie yeah yeah i mean like you really do there's like you said there's the uh there's the scene with the uh chumming you know and then there's the scene with quint there's the scene with it kind of coming towards brody at the very very end and then, like, there's some stuff where you see it underwater, like the, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the pond scene. And there's a couple of other things where it's, like, kind of gliding by the boat. But, like, it's all kind of obscured by the water. And, like, you never directly see it. I think that I think that it's wonderful. I think that it really holds up. The thing that I think you have to also realize is they, they built – or not built, but they – they developed a sense of scale mm-hmm. and they did it in a way that I think makes a lot of sense. Like when they shoot those, the air barrels at it to weigh oh, yeah. the shark down and the things got, you know, was a four at some point or something crazy like that. And it's taking it down with it and still swimming. You still get that sense of this thing's a beast you know, like this yeah. is this is just a a killing machine, and it's gigantic. That sense of scale, I think, really helps with telling how menacing this thing is without even showing it. Right? Yeah. Even when they catch the tiger shark and they they decide to cut it open on the dock, it's it's still a big shark, and the fact that you know the tiger shark. You know, there's a, there's a license plate in it. Like, you know, like, it's kind of like a cartoon gag, right? They just start pulling out kind of crazy right? stuff. yeah. But, like, you still even get a sense from there that even one of these small things is incredibly dangerous. So, I think yeah. they did a really good job with this shark, despite it having so many problems. And, you know, this is one of those, like, chocolate chip cookie thing, right? Like, it, like I didn't mean to make this, but it came out this way. Um, which is kind of, it's bastardizing to say for Spielberg because he still did an incredible job with the tools that he had. You know, he, he, you know, poor Carpenter blames their tools, but he still made magic based on this. So even to say like it did work in their advantage, it, it worked in a way that I think he still knew what he was doing. Oh yeah. hundred percent. 100%. Uh, and I mean, to, to that, I mean, to, on that note, like, let's get into like Spielberg's direction in here. Um, I, there are so many things that I think you could see he was still trying out in this movie, but there are also things I see in here that are like, this is stuff you still see in Spielberg and like, like it it may be more refined now, but it's still like his little touches. Um, and the the essence, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And one of the things that I wanted to, to ask you about in particular 
was did you pay any sort of attention to like the framing at all uh, in like how characters were set up within frame and stuff like that? Yeah, like they're, they're I think to think about it, like the the close ups on people's face, like the sheriff, sheriff Brody in particular, like when you see kind of the terror that falls him right like when you see that face you get that real sense of like you know like the, oh my god like my stomach just gave out kind of thing yeah right where there, there are great moments of that the other one I, I always think of um when when hooper when jaws comes by and hooper's like that's got to be 20 feet long and they they do that close-up on uh robert shaw and, and quinn just says 25 like you know, like he yeah, and yeah. he's got this like he he looks at it like this is my moment, you know, like he's got that that look in his eye of like this is this is it, like this is what I lived for. Um, really great uses in there, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one one thing that I I wanted to bring up, and the reason that I asked you about this specifically, because I was taking notes, uh, as I do when I'm trying to like kind of go through something analytically, and it was something that. Like, I hadn't really noticed when watching it before, but a lot of the stuff they have with, especially with Chief Brody, was they had a lot of the frames, like, uh, be asymmetrical, where he would be on one side of the frame and then have not necessarily, like, blank space to, like, the left or the right of him, because that wasn't happening very often, but, like they would have him on one side and then everybody else on the other side or something like that. Like, and I, I feel like a lot of the stuff that like gets taken in, you know, you were talking about the lore and the backstory earlier and stuff like that. Like he's from the mainland. He's from New York city. He's supposed to be here trying to build like a new life for himself. Uh, right. and he's I not think, an Island guy. Yeah, exactly. And they, and they keep kind of like noting that in the early parts of the movie. And I, I noticed in those sequences, all the stuff on land, he's very separated from everyone. And he's always like either all the way on the, on the right or all the way on the left. And then the other people are filling the frame around him. And I just thought that that was a very interesting thing and that he's also kind of got like a weather eye on the horizon too like he's always kind of like panning or like looking out at like yeah beach you know like very outsider look a hundred percent and uh i i know that i've noticed this like a million times before but i'm always impressed with that split diopter shot where he's looking at the guy directly in his face and then just kind of like it's still in focus, but ever so slightly out of focus to the left of that guy's face. That's taking up like half the frame. You see uh, that Brody's still paying attention to like what's going on in the ocean. I love that shot so much. Like it's, uh, I mean, split diopter shots when used are, or when used effectively are always awesome. But like, I, I especially love it here. Um, yeah, and uh, another thing I wanted to ask about was, in, in regards to Spielberg, was I know that I talked about this on um, Jurassic Park with like the way that he likes to play one-shots, where 
they're not really flashy. They're not very showy. Like he he usually has a camera that will move like ever so slightly plant itself for, you know, the next 15 to 30 seconds and then kind of move again. And I was noted, I was trying to pay attention to like how he moves the camera in this. And a lot of it is very locked off. And Spielberg, he, he's not David Fincher where David Fincher always has camera in one position, one position, one position. And then he makes the cuts the way that he wants to have them made or whatever. Uh, but I noticed a lot of this was very like camera on a tripod type shots. Did, did you notice that at all? Yeah. And, and, and that always struck me as like, I think that's sort of just a sign of the times maybe. Mm. Is that kind of that? Like, you know, it's the seventies, just that that's what filmmaking was kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, I think that you're right. Cause I was, I was, actually was just thinking about this steady cam stuff didn't start happening i think until after this movie was made okay let me look okay. up let me look yeah it up. always just struck me as like yeah introduced in 1975 <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah anyway you were saying sorry no 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 that was my thought it was just kind of that like that this is this there's a little bit of like, this is just how movies were made, right? Yeah. You know, it's like it, at some point somebody said, we're going to introduce audio into this. And then the silent movie was done. You know, like that's just this kind of moved on from here. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, the only other, th- well, I there were two things that I, I wanted to bring up. Uh, one is I, I just made a video about blocking in... Uh, Stranger Things. Uh, it was not all about blocking, but it's about like how to be a good director. But uh, I very prominently talk about blocking, and one of the things that I noticed in this movie is that he was still very much introducing those elements. I think to his kind of like bag of tricks. Like one of the things that I noticed, he used a lot of like leading lines and a lot of like geometric shapes with the way that he would like lay characters out like for instance in the um uh the town hall scene where everyone's there and they're trying to talk about like um you know are you going to shut down the beaches and stuff like that if you look at where brody is placed there is like a line of heads leading directly towards him and it's like not only just with the people that are sitting there that are on like the the city council or whatever but it's like also the the reporters and the people who are asking the questions both sets of heads line up to to point towards Brody and there was another shot on the boat itself where i noticed like the way that like Hooper was in the background Quint was in the foreground and then off to the side was was uh Brody and it kind of formed a triangle and like i was sitting there and i was like he's still like kind of figuring this stuff out but it was very much like oh this is spielberg type thing did that uh did did you notice that at all not not until you mentioned it now i mean that's that that is crazy to see and to note so okay like absolutely like again for this time right it's absolutely wild yeah yeah 
and then the the last thing I wanted to to note was I I feel like the movie is full of a bunch of um like I, I setups and payoffs both in the writing but also in the shots like there's one shot where you're seeing uh it's like a like a very strong close up of of Brody and then um that almost same exact sort of framing is used again in the in the um why don't you come down here and chum some of this shit scene <laughs> like it's it's almost exactly the same exact framing and i was like oh that's really neat because there are things like i said in the writing where you're like okay they mentioned this this comes up again later you know checkoff's gun or whatever but like they even did that with some of the shot compositions and i just thought that that was really clever i i, I don't know <sighs> Now Maybe yeah, I'm more like more tips and tricks. I mean, this is stuff that clearly I think you you, have, you understand that reverence for. So I think it's really cool to note that and see that stuff in here. Yeah. Um. So the the cinematography was done by Bill Butler. Um, I don't have much to say about it other than there are a lot of just really really beautiful shots in this. Uh, like there's the one that like, I, uh, like love this shot and it's the one of Quinn and the sun is directly behind him going down and it's just, it's backlit. It's just a shadow of Quinn and he's standing with like the gun at the very front of the ship. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah, uh, I think that there are a, a ton of really, really beautiful shots in this movie. That's all I really have to say about it. Otherwise, I think it's relatively like just I don't know. I don't want to say straightforward. You know? Yeah, like you yeah, wanna, yeah. Like I don't want to overstate it. I, I think that there are some really beautiful shots, but it's like yeah, very straightforward. Um. The next thing I've got uh, uh, here is the editing uh, that was done by Verna Fields. Uh, Verna Fields was actually uh, a relatively big uh, deal for Spielberg. She worked on uh, Duel, The Sugarland Express, and then this with him. She died not too long after this, I think. Uh, like, maybe late 70s. Uh, early 80s but she was kind of responsible actually for helping to get him this job if I'm not mistaken um, which is kind of cool uh, yeah uh, did you I think this is a very similar situation to um, uh, Jurassic Park where I don't think that there's anything necessarily inherently flashy with the editing but it helps to like move the movie along at a quick enough clip to make it engaging the entire time. Yeah. Uh, what I, are I your think, thoughts? I, I think the one thing that I would say is we, we sort of talked about this a little bit already, that it does feel split between two movies where the first half definitely feels like it, fe it feels very separate, but it doesn't feel as though it is a incredibly long movie. Um, yeah. It does. It does feel like it does flow very well. And especially at the end. I mean, those last, those last few scenes 
um, speed by at a clip that like you're you're kind of still like wondering what the heck happened, right? Yeah, which is pre- which is pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Um, let's see. Next thing we've got the score by John Williams. I said last time that I think that Jurassic Park is John Williams' uh, best score. Um, so is this the second best for you? I don't know that this is the second best, uh, but I did really like it. And it has a lot of like old Hollywood kind of like magic to it. It Like there are a, a bunch of strings and, you know, um, like there's a heavy use of the harp in this which I, I kind of didn't really remember. Like I, you, you know, you think of like the, the, the cello with the, the Donna, you, you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, but like, I, um, yeah, no, I love this score. I, I don't know that it's the second best. Uh, it's definitely up there. It's very iconic. Um, but yeah, what, what did you, uh, what did you think about? I still think this might be one of the most iconic. I, I mean, it's just there's so much dread, yeah, in in yeah. everything that's you know, and and every time you hear it, it's that reminder, it's yep. that constant reminder, um, which you know, so many would go on to to do is like you know, use this hook to basically be the foreshadowing of what comes next. But I, I do think it's it's up there with some of the most iconic scores that are out there. Um, and it's just, it, it also kind of has like, it re- does kind of have this like sense of depth, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With it. What are your thoughts? I mean, that's, that, I kind of said a lot of it last time too with, with Jurassic Park, but I, that that's where I tend to lean. Yeah, no, I, I a hundred percent agree with you. I, I think that a lot of people, when they think of John Williams, it's unfortunate, but I think that they think of like one of like three or four main themes from a movie, you know, like with star Wars, you have the Imperial March, you have, um, the, what's it, what's it called? The, the one with the, with the two sunsets going down. I I forget what the name of the track is called, but like, there are like a handful of songs that people will pick out and they're like, Oh yeah, John Williams, like this thing. But like, if you really listen to the whole score as it's playing out, like there's a lot more going on than just like the big themes of the movie. And I, I, I really think that like, he's a master of composition when it comes to like the, uh, the music that he's doing. Um, I think that what you said is correct. I think that there's a lot more depth behind this score than a lot of people give it credit for. Absolutely. So, um, fun fact, uh, before we go on is this is actually his second time working with, uh, Spielberg. He had worked with Spielberg on, I believe it was the Sugarland Express. And, uh, the, actually the reason that he, um, was uh moved i can't remember if he worked with spielberg before he worked with uh lucas 
or if it was the other way around. But basically, there was like this really funny, like incestuous sort of relationship between like Lucas, Spielberg, and and uh, and Williams, where like John Williams worked with this person, and then this person was like, "Oh, hey, you should do this," and then it just kind of became like all three of them worked together until George Lucas decided all he was going to do was Star Wars. It, you, I mean, at some point it's like, hey, you know, you, you kind of have that guy, right? Like, you're like, hey, that's my hardware guy. Like, yeah, yeah that's my right? music guy. You know, like, that's kind of, I, I feel like that's where it kind of leans, yeah. but. Yep. Good stuff, though. Um, very good stuff. All right, let's get into the uh, the characters and the acting uh, as our last little bit. Um, I wanted to bring up uh, two or three of these characters who are less involved in the movie. Um, the first one is uh, Susan uh, Backlini, I think is how you're saying. Uh, she plays Chrissy Watkins, and she is the first... Um, Victim. Victim, yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on her? Not a very good swimmer. <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, definitely that, you know, here's something beautiful that dies, right? Yeah. Uh, I, again, I, I don't have much to say like you. Uh, she sells the terror really well. Um, I think she's very good when she's um screaming <laughs> but like there's nothing much to latch onto with her character um yeah uh she's good for what she has to do but that's i mean i think that's about it so um yeah i think we will move on uh the next one on the list that i've got is uh jeffrey kramer as deputy hendrix uh, I don't personally have much to say about him other than he really strikes me as, uh, like the, I, I don't want to say the Barney Fife character, but like you get everything from his performance that he's kind of like a very affable dude who is just like going with the flow type thing. Uh, and it, his performance cracks me up. Like I, I know there's the, the scene in the mirror or like not in the mirror, but like the, uh, the little shack where Sheriff Brody's on the phone and he's talking, uh, to whoever, I, I think it's maybe the, the secretary at the sheriff's office or whatever. And he turns around and he like knocks on the window to get the deputy's attention. And he just looks back and he's got this big goofy grin on his face and he kind of waves. And I like, Everything I needed to know about that character comes from that one little, like... That instance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that pretty much sums it up on him, though. Like, I mean, that's kind of, like... <laughs> the facial gyrations, I guess. Yeah. 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 I There's a... I mean, there's not much to latch onto with his character. He's just kind of, like, a supporting, you know, guy. But, like... Uh, he's in what maybe three or four scenes and that that one in the uh the office or the wherever it is that brody is um calling right it just i think is completely emblematic of his character yeah 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So next up, we've got the true villain of the movie, <laughs> uh, Murray Hamilton as Mayor Larry Vaughn. Uh, I don't. Why don't you take this one away? What What are your thoughts on? Well, he on this guy. <laughs> He, Mayor is one way of describing it. I'd almost want to describe, he's like more of like the, like, he almost strikes me as like the chief of commerce at some point. Like he's the, he's the guy that's making sure that everybody's on the beach and everybody's spending money, you know, like that's the kind of, yeah. that's the kind of guy he represents. Then, you know, he's the, he's the face of this town. He's the face of basically, right, a- Amity. Right, he's the face of yeah. this this whole thing, um, and he's also in denial of the fact that there's <laughs> you know a, a carnivorous animal out there destroying the beach. But he's so two faced. He's the he's the definition of a two faced politician, and I love that. I think one of my favorite things is when he's just he's standing there at the docks and. They want to, you know, they want to open up that tiger shark to see if this was the thing that was killing everybody, right? Because it would have eaten, yeah, uh, it would have eaten, you know, a part of somebody, or you know, you, they're basically saying like, oh, what happens if this kid pops out of this shark's stomach <laughs> on the dock? And he, he justifiably, he kind of knows like this is not going to be a good sight for anybody. But also at the same time, you know, you need definitive proof to make sure. But <laughs> I think this is this is also the scene where they pull the license plate out. I think right, they, the shark ate the license uh, plate. I think it's like the next scene, but yeah, yeah. But he's just it's it's so emblematic of of who this guy is, right? He's he's just this. He's I don't want to use the word opportunist, but he is just this. So he's so fixated on making sure that everybody is out on the beach having a good time and that, and that there's quote unquote, no problem, but yeah, you know, he's so in denial over it. And the experts mm-hmm. out there are saying, you know, you got, you have Richard Dreyfuss's character, you know, saying like, it doesn't matter what you think, Mr. Politician, we have to get this done. But, uh, he is just, he, I guess you could probably say he's, he's a little bit of a narcissist too, right? Like, Oh, yeah. Even the way he dresses, which, mind you, that suit jacket, that striped suit jacket was just phenomenal. But uh, <laughs> he is just the definition of, like, a two-faced politician and done and done well. You know, like, he's definitely the villain, and he definitely makes very poor, stupid choices, but he it's hard to say like he had the best of intentions because his intentions really weren't like they weren't the quote-unquote best they were sort of the most profitable right he wanted to do right by the business owners of this of this town but even at that point you know i think we said it before but at some point somebody would have come in and said like you no one can swim no one should be swimming and they do that in other areas right they you know they do that in places like florida and you, you could see it where like yeah there's like a hundred sharks in the water nobody should be in it <laughs> so, right so he he's a he's a fantastic villain in this movie yeah 100 percent agreed um 
I, I don't think that you really could have said anything better. Uh, like, I don't disagree with anything you said. One thing I, I wanted to add, though, uh, this was something that I, uh, again, like, I've seen this movie maybe a million times, and I, I pick up on different things every time that I, I watch it. But I am relatively positive that uh, in one scene, you see, like, a little sign in one of the yards that says something like Vaughn Realty or something. I am pretty sure he's also a real estate broker. Oh, that wouldn't surprise me. So, I don't know. I thought if it, I, I might be wrong, but I, I'm relatively positive that that is the case. And, like, that just, uh, yeah, that adds just even a little bit more to hate about that character. Right, the, the whole context of him, you know, he's the, he is the king of this castle, right? He's He's the lord of this land. He gets to yeah. decide who comes in and, and who comes out. But then nature comes and says, no, I get to decide who lives and who yeah, dies. Right. <laughs> yeah, just absolutely ridiculous. Um, okay, yeah, let's move on to Lorraine Gary as Ellen Brody. Um, I love this character. Uh because she kind of brings like a, a, a I don't want to say a sweetness, but like it's very much a like a, a, a male dominated, like egocentric, like uh, battle of wills almost for almost the entire movie. And there are little sequences like near the midway point where like uh brody is kind of like learning about sharks and like uh like stuff like that and like she just brings this kind of like warmth to to the to the cast and like this kind of like sweetness um and i i really really like her in the role i think that she's fantastic it, she doesn't get as much to do here she does in Jaws 2 and definitely not as much as she gets in Jaws the Revenge which is a fucking atrocious movie uh, but you know we're not talking about those two um, yeah I, I, I think that she is great in uh, in this movie what are what are your thoughts on Lorraine Gary they, they made a sequel to Jaws that's so strange um, they made three sequels to Jaws yeah. <laughs> And one of them was in Back to the Future. Um, no, I, I, I think you're a hundred percent right on on this character here. I think she's very. It's, I I used this comment for our last show with Samuel Jackson being like the voice of reason. I don't necessarily think she's the voice of reason in this, but I do think you're right. She is sort of this voice of compassion, right? She's this person who can show that there's a that there is a lighter side or or that there's a caring and loving side to this that what they're trying to do what these three men are trying to do when they go out um it matters because there are people back home that they care about there there are people that their lives are at risk because mm -hmm. of this i think she i think she does a good job of portraying that that not necessarily role, but that kind of um, like moniker in this, right? Is that that sense of compassion that there's th there is something to return back to? 
there is somebody yes. to return home to. Uh, that this isn't just man versus beast. That it's that it is this tale of like, well, we have to keep things safe. We have to keep things. We we have to keep the people that we love alive, right? That we have to keep them safe. So I I, I think she does a very good job of that in this movie, and and she also I I, I do feel that with Brody, she is very um, she's like a calming element for him. Because he's definitely, no pun intended, he's like a fish out of water, right? But Oh, yeah, yeah. He, sure. she, she grounds him in a way that I think gives him that courage to do a lot of this stuff. And, and especially in the back half of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's one scene that always cracks me up is, like, it's literally what you're saying. It's like she's kind of like the, uh, the, the calming force for him and like kind of like, Bring, reels him in from like his uh, his anxieties and stuff getting like out of control she kind of like pulls him back in but she <laughs> she um, uh, there's that one scene where uh, the the little boy is out on the boat or whatever and Brody's like oh you gotta get him out of there you know whatever and then um, she looks down at the book that he's uh actively reading and it shows the shark just like devouring an entire little rowboat and then she like goes over to the window and starts screaming at the boy to get out of the boat that scene always cracks me up because like you said she's the calming force or whatever but then she's immediately like oh shit this is unreal you know I don't know it's that scene always it's it's a little cartoonish I would say but um like it really kind of hammers the point home i guess but yeah. uh yeah i do i i do agree that's a that is a fantastic scene to bring up for this yeah um all right let's go next to matt hooper who is portrayed by richard trifus um Hoopa. i mean do you, do you want to take this one away because i don't have really a whole lot to say other than like I love him in this role and it's because of this movie that he actually uh, goes on to do um, uh, Third Encounters of or wait, hang on. Close Encounters Close of Encounters the of the Third Kind. Yeah. Yeah, it, so, he's um, he's like a fantastic nerd, right? He is just <laughs> the epitome of nerd. And I really think as much as you want to sit there and say like, Oh, he, he might be the hero of this where I think all three of them really are like together. They are the heroes, right? Like they can't, nobody can do it without the other, but, um, Mm -hmm. he is just, he's such a nerd. Like he cannot do this alone. And we, we alluded to it in the, in later, uh, before in, in the show, like, you know, he's the guy who shows up with all the equipment. He's the guy who shows up with mm-hmm. all the scientific instruments. He has the the shark cage. He's got a harpoon, a wetsuit. He, you know, like he's got literally everything to combat the the forces of nature here, like the sea. And yet he still is sort of afraid, right? He's definitely afraid. And he'll, he'll do anything to make sure that he's in a position to succeed, 
But at the end of the day, he really doesn't have the experience, right? Like he's not, yeah. he, he can do all the studying he wants. You can read every manual, every book, but it doesn't change the fact that you're going toe to toe with a 25 foot gray white. So yeah. it is, it is definitely like a street smarts versus book smarts sort of scenario where, where the other two are helping out in very unique ways, but his, his insight is what also helps take this thing down, right? It takes jaws down, but, uh, he's, he's so, he's also so headstrong. Like he's so stubborn Mm -hmm. throughout the movie. He, he, he refuses to believe what anybody in a, in a, position of authority says right he he doesn't want to listen to the mayor he doesn't believe that they know or understand what what they're up against um a little bit of like a naysayer but he's he's certainly going about it the wrong way um yeah yeah one of the things that uh, i think you kind of brought up is like he richard Dreyfus definitely plays this character with almost like a a, a tinge of uh, childishness, I think. Like it's it's definitely exemplified in that one scene where you know Quint's like arguing with him back and forth, and then he kind of like pulls his mouth apart and like sticks his tongue out. You know what I'm saying? Right, um, right, right. Like there, there's definitely a sense of uh, maybe not childishness, but like definitely naivete uh, to his character. Like I I think that he thinks, like you were saying that he thinks that he's going to be able to just kind of like take this shark down with all of his science and stuff like that. But he's not experienced enough to know that that's not necessarily going to work. And I think that Dreyfus really kind of nails that home with his performance. And like uh, that scene where they're showing like their battle scars or whatever, like totally nails that down for me too, where he's like, at the at the end of everything, he kind of like jokes or whatever about how like he had his heart broken, uh, and like that's kind of like the I don't want to say like the childishness, but like that's the the sort of kid in him. You know, he's like he's fun loving, he's he's making jokes and stuff like that. But then when the time is serious, like they get serious, and he's very hyper focused and and uh, like wants to take in all of this knowledge and use this knowledge. Like uh, when Quint brings up the USS Indianapolis, he immediately knows what he's talking about and like, is like chiming in, you know, to help Quint tell the story or whatever. Um, But, but at the same time, he'll never know. You know, like that's the thing is like he, yeah, he can recite the words, but it, it's a matter of knowing it where like Quint, Quint is the, like he's the experienced fisherman. He's the he he knows this stuff, and he didn't have to read a textbook to know it. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I I definitely agree with that analysis. Um, is there anything else to say about Richard Dreyfus, other I, than yeah. the fact that uh, he was in, um, you know, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and. Uh, that scared you. Richard Dreyfus was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Isn't that isn't that what you said? Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd. That's. 
I don't know why I remembered you saying Richard Travis. Uh, okay, well. Which still to this anyway. day <laughs> frightens me. Um, no, I think that's, I think that's good. I, I think the next, I think the next one for me is, <laughs> man, how do you not love Robert Shaw as Quint? Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that Quint is probably, or, or at the very least, Robert Shaw's portrayal of Quint is my favorite character in the movie. Um, he has this, like, just, how do I want to put it? Uh, he's a man. <laughs> he's a man. He's got this charisma to him that is immediately, like, both scary and endearing. Uh, I know we were talking about, with the cinematography earlier, that one shot of him on the bow of the ship, and he's just sitting there, and, like, he's cool as a fucking cucumber, but they were literally just, like, I don't want to say getting attacked, but, like, uh, at one point, you know, the shark has gone under the boat, and, like, by the end of that sequence, he's standing on the edge of the boat, and he's completely calm, and, like, he's got this aura about him, and Robert Shaw is just magnetic. Yeah. Like, when he is on screen, you do not want to take your eyes off of him. Um, yeah, I, I love this character. He He's fantastic, he, in my opinion. He's the guy, like, if you were stranded on a desert island, he's the guy that would build you the hut. He would find food. He would, like, he is that guy, right? He yep. he understands everything about his surroundings, and he knows how to... Um, he knows how to combat it or navigate it. I, I think it is just, it's fitting that he goes out the way that he does, but it's also so, it sucks, right? It's just, it is a gut punch to see him get taken down by Jaws because yeah. he, he, you trust, you, you trust that he is the guy to do it. Right, yeah, he yeah, is 100%. totally the guy to do it. He, if anybody is going out there, it's him. But it is so disheartening to see him basically lose. But uh, he knows how to fight. Like he is—he's just a fighter. And like you said, like he's even when he's getting nervous, he starts singing like sea shanties. Yeah, because because yeah. he sort of knows that like oh like things are not great, but he's trying to keep himself calm. He's trying to. He's trying to keep things going, essentially. Whereas, mm-hmm. <laughs> where you give Hooper and Brody are like, like scrambling because they know once they hit the water, they're dead. But uh, he is just even as the ship is going down, even at like he is sliding down that boat. He, you know, you just feel that he is. You, you think he could still do it. <laughs> You know, like you sort of think he can still fight this thing, but it is it just sucks that he goes down so hard like that. And especially after learning so much of who he was the night before, right? With the Indianapolis and and like his his idea of what it means to conquer the sea, right? He's he yeah. is this fisherman. He he saw the worst of it. He knows how bad it can be. 
and he knows how to navigate it. But uh, it is he's a fantastic character, and like you said, he's once he's on screen, you, you can't help but just see this guy and see this like this again like this rugged man that he just knows the water he is the water yeah. right yeah 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 and for for all of his uh you know all of that knowledge he's also still blind blinded enough in his pursuit of this shark like I, the thing about this character for me and not necessarily how robert shaw portrays him but definitely the way that the story is played out is like it has become his life's mission to kind of hunt down sharks right like he tells the story of like basically how it all happened with the uh with the uss indianapolis so we kind of get the backstory of why he became the shark hunter but like earlier in the movie when they're kind of setting up the boat and getting ready to go you're walking around his little shack and there are just like shark jaws everywhere and like you you get the sense even not necessarily from how robert shaw is playing him but like just from like little details like that that this man is obsessed with hunting sharks so like like you said it 100% like this is the guy if if there is anybody who is going to take this shark down if there's anybody who's going to catch him any of that stuff this is the man to do it and like he's so blinded by his like uh pursuit of the uh i don't i don't want to say the unknown that's not really like his pursuit of of the sharks and making sure that they're like dead or whatever that brings that is his downfall and it's like it's it's weirdly poetic and also heartbreaking at the same time because it's like eventually you know after he de- dies you've got one left you've got brody Bro- brody can maybe do it maybe but brody also is uh, in a similar position to hooper he's inexperienced and like it's like leading up to that final sequence where you have brody you know staring down the shark or whatever it's like is he going to be able to do this because if he's not like this this shark is going to continue to fuck up everybody on Amity, right. like, and they're all they're all going to be screwed, right? And and you kind of like once you see Quint go down, you're like, oh, so it really is hopeless. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but yeah, I I love this character. I think he is magnificent, and like I said, Robert Shaw just he's magnetic when he's on the screen. Uh, I I never want to take my eyes off Quint when he is on screen. Um, but finally we have, uh, Roy Scheider as Chief Martin Brody. Um, my question to you about him is, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to say this and I know this is going to sound absolutely insane. Okay. For a lot of reasons, but, uh, I have never seen Roy Scheider in anything else i have only ever seen him in jaws one and two i i don't um, know if i could really name much like i'd have to go through his you know his his uh i guess portfolio or whatever you want to call it but i i don't really know yeah well so my, my question i guess i'm gonna let me say this okay 
I've never, and I actually take that back. I have seen him in a couple of other things, but I don't remember him in those movies. I think he is less important in those movies, maybe. Um, like, he's in the French Connection where he is Russo. Okay. I don't really remember him in that, but, you know, whatever. He's also in, like, uh, Three Kings. Um, but, again, I don't really remember him in that. The thing I remember him from distinctly is uh, this movie. And I would feel confident in saying Roy Scheider is an excellent actor just from having seen <laughs> yeah. this movie. So, like, are your... My question is, are, are your feelings kind of the same? I, he's he's the... He's the definition of dread. You know, like, he's... He is... He's, he's dreading everything that's happening. And I think you get mm. that sense of fear from him throughout this movie. Like... Look, this this is very real. He's he's yeah. responsible. He's the sheriff. He's responsible for mm-hmm. the safety of these people, and there's nothing he can do about it. Yeah, one hundred percent. I I think that like the way that the the I think that he actually maybe has the uh, least characterization of the main three, um, but he still has like a, like. The thing that you're you're saying there is like you know he has the the responsibility or whatever and like he has to fight against his kind of like fear of the water really like you know it's it's kind of signposted around the entire movie that it, like he is afraid of water um, and uh, he kind of has a fight against that because he feels responsible um, but uh, the the point I was going to make is like. I feel like I know who Brody is, even though he's the least, like, he's got the, like, sort of, like, least amount of characterization in the, in the script. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I could see that being the case. I mean, he's, he's a little everyman, like. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is to say, like, I, I don't want to distinctly call him out for being, like, a mile wide, but an inch tall. Um, Mm. but yeah, I, I do agree with you on that. I do think he's not, you know, you're not getting an in-depth look into his backstory or life like you are with Quint. You're not getting that dynamic sort of insight that, that Hooper provides, right? Or, or the, maybe the layers that, that Hooper provides, because again, like you, like you mentioned, he's a little more. You, you know he you know he pushes his glasses up with his index finger and kind of like sarcastically laughs but then you do mm-hmm. understand that the guy knows what he's talking about but 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 Brody is a little more I don't know if he's meant to be all of us but he does feel a little like not like silent protagonist but I think he he sort of observes a lot of what's going on and he takes a lot of it in and has to understand how to overcome this stuff. Um, And I wouldn't say that he's the weakest of the three. I think he is an important part of this, the back half of this movie. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. You know, like he is, he is a very important part because 
I, I think there's a little bit of like, you can't do this with two. This is a three man job, right? That's kind of the mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You need the, the responsibility from him and then the, the kind of like scientific minded nature from Hooper. And then you need the like, I'm going to take this fucking thing down, whether it kills me or not from Quint. Like right. you need the three of them in combination in order for this, like the, the final piece of this movie to work. Yeah. I, I, I don't, and it's again. I don't. I don't find him to be like a weak character or anything like that. But you you do get the sense that here's a guy who is very responsible. Like he's he's not gonna he's not gonna knock the mayor out and say we're doing this right. He's not gonna throw a haymaker at the mayor and say like to hell with politics. We got to do it. like he's still following orders throughout the movie. Right. He's still taking orders. He's still trying to do the right thing. And be responsible, but also please all parties, which I think there's sort of that like, I don't want to call it admirable, but it's that sort of, this is the role I took on. This is the job that I took on until eventually then it becomes like, we don't have a choice. <laughs> we have to go out and do this. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think of the three, I, I don't want to call I don't want to called out as like favorites but i think the quint's death scene really says it the most is that like i i sort of wish this guy would would be able to conquer this the way that he should have right they should have been able to like get like bring back the jaws of this of this shark so he could say like this is the 25er i got you know where you sort of really kind of feel for him, like, oh, man, like, why did he have to go? And, of course, you're sitting there, like, if he's gone, what now what? But, uh, yeah, I guess those are my feelings on, on Brody. Yeah, I, I pretty much concur with everything you said. Um, I His face really says it all. Uh, obviously, the show, or, like, the, the scene with the... Um, I forget what the actual camera technique is called, but where you're zooming in as you're pulling out on a dolly, uh, it, it's something that um, uh, I'm pretty sure Hitchcock kind of pioneered. I, I forget again what the technique is called, but like it's iconic. It it is Jaws that scene where he's kind of like looking out into the water, and then that you know happens, and it's written all over his face. Uh, yeah, Roy Scheider, great actor. He delivered perfectly in the role. Um, all right, so let's get into this final bit, our final thoughts and ratings. Uh, I mean, what do we do? do? Out, of this, out of teeth? Yeah, shark teeth, maybe? Yeah, that's probably yeah. it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Out of those floating uh, dead bodies that <laughs> scared the shit out of everyone. Right? <sighs> Um, all right. Do you want to go first or you want me to? I, I think, yeah, I'll go first. Um, okay. I think it's, it's hard to say that this is not one of the most iconic and perfect movies. Cause I do think it, it, like I, like I said before, I think this, this deterred a lot of people from wanting to go swimming in the ocean. Um, but it is a very, very iconic movie. I think due to the fact that, you know, they are two sort of separate movies 
laced mm-hmm. within each other. I think that sort of does take points off for me. Um, whereas, like this, this goes from like a four and a half, from a five to a four and a half because I think that little bit of consistency would have helped. Um, because at some point, it really kind of does turn into an action movie. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas in the beginning, it is very much this horror-driven thing, and staying like that, I think, or staying in either direction makes this something completely different, but I still think even the way that it's divided up is still unique, which still gives this movie, this movie deserves so much, right? So I think that's where I I land on this, if I'm, if we can do half-tooth, like a four and a half Mm. out of five, because I, I do think just that little bit of inconsistency is, it it doesn't work against it, but it also doesn't work for it. It kind of yeah, is. It's yeah. there's a little bit of like this indifference there, where it isn't. It isn't. It's noticeable enough to break a little bit of the pacing of it. But okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah. Uh, cool. Well, uh, I think this gets a solid five out of five for me. Um, this is, I, I said it with Jurassic Park, uh, this is one of the 20-some-odd movies that I would consider perfect. Um, I don't know what it is necessarily about this movie that makes it stand out above a lot of the other horror movies from the from the uh, late 70s, or, well, not even really late 70s, but, like, um, like just the seventies in general, uh, like at like from but, the adaptation of the genre kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But this this is one that like one hundred percent stands out. Like, even though it is kind of like, uh, I mean, like we talked about, it's kind of like two movies in one. I don't care because both of those movies are entertaining. Yeah, like. The, the stuff that all happens on the mainland with, with like, it, almost like a, uh, uh, I, I don't even know what you, like, a almost like a character drama between, like, the, the forces of, of capitalism and, and it's, like, the, you know, ruthless ambition um, versus, you know, humanity and, like, d- quote-unquote doing the right thing, like... The fact that uh, the second movie kind of becomes like an almost adventure movie or, or like even like a buddy movie uh, to me d- doesn't deter that at all because I like them both. I like them equally. Yeah. Uh, I think that both of the char- like the characters in both parts are for the most part very well defined. Like some of them not as much like, you know, kind of we talked about like, uh, you know, Chrissy. She's only got one scene, but, you know she's not really like a de- a defined character and i i think that like um like that would get points off from some people but like i easily overlook them i think that jaws is one of the most entertaining movies ever made and it is one that i go back to constantly when i think about like i, I mean i would probably put this in the top 50 movies ever made 
uh, if I'm being honest, like from my perspective, like I, I don't know everybody would need to do that, but like this is one that I consistently go back to and consistently say, this is a damn good movie. Not only did I have a good time like watching it, but you know, it was just, it was good. It was fun. It was, uh, you know, well-made like, I don't know. Um, I think that this is impeccable movie making. Yeah. I, I also think, um, this movie really benefits from the fact that, you know, you, you, there are many other horror movies out there where they're, they're very fantastic or, um, they're unbelievable. I think the thing with Jaws is it's extremely believable. You know, oh, like yeah, it's 100%. it's one of these things that th- there's a lot of terror and dread around it because, you know, people people have been bitten by sharks. You know, they they're real animals. They really are. Um, they're out there and they can hurt people. Um, so it's uh, it's hard to sit here and say like this movie doesn't have an, an incredible impact because it totally does. It. it makes Mm -hmm. sharks into these you know villains of the sea or these monsters but um yeah this yeah i i mean what literally what you're saying right there like dude it is insane to think that like this movie is responsible for so many people believing that sharks are these vicious man eaters that like hunt down humans you know what i mean like it's actually insane that that's the case because you know, you watch stuff like um, uh, the Shark Week on on Discovery Channel or whatever, and they're actively debunking that stuff. And people are like, "No, they're man eaters." Like, well, well no, they're not. <laughs> but right, they, they, I don't know. They it's aren't. just kind of uh, crazy. They aren't, and and it's it's actually kind of funny because so many people um, attribute that. But the problem is, like, they're like the amount of actual like deaths due to shark attacks are not as high as you'd think. They're not. But yeah. they still are terrifying. And, you know, hey, those those jet black eyes that have, like, that are soulless. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I get it. They're, they're, they look, you know, they, they look like the eyes of something that will probably kill you. But, uh, yeah, I, I, iconic is, is definitely the word for it. Oh, yeah. 100%. Uh, well, yeah, that wraps up our episode on Jaws. Um, I, one of the things that we had started instituting uh, near the end of the uh, initial run of this show was we were going to talk about what we are talking about next uh, because uh, we wanted people to be able to follow along. Um, but I don't think that we have uh, decided on one yet, correct? I don't think so. Okay, so... Should we decide we'll, uh, on one? We'll, I, I think what we'll do is we'll... Or maybe um, what we should do is tell everybody stay tuned and keep aware and follow us on all of our feeds so that we man, can tell them just, what's coming up next. You took the words right out of my mouth. You literally took the words right out of my mouth said maybe we can de- i was going to say maybe we can decide and you know if you keep your eyes peeled on the social media you'll you'll find out but look at you mr businessman i figured it out <laughs> well uh yeah without with all of that said as 
always, you can find us on social media for all things Culture Pop, Hunting Pixels, and the Culture... No, no, I did that wrong. Let's let's rewind a little bit. Got into my, uh, my, my habit there. As always, you can find us on social media for all things Culture Pop, Culture Pop Selects, and the Culture Pop family of content. Uh, Culture Bop is available on Instagram at culture underscore bop. Uh, I, I think I said this last week, or if I didn't, I said it on, on Hunting Pixels. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just do away with the Twitter accounts because I don't use it nearly as much as I should or could. Um, so Instagram is really going to be the place to get your Culture Bop fix uh, in terms of like news and announcements. For now, you know, maybe we'll reinstate the Twitter later. Uh, but also, uh, you have the YouTube channel, which now has its own custom URL. Thank you to everyone who has been watching um, the Stranger Things video. Just straight up, it uh, has grown the channel beyond my wildest imagination. Um, and you can now... Go to, uh, I believe it is, uh, let me pull this up real quick. I, I believe it is youtube.com slash C slash culture bop, but I want to just want to make sure. It is a fantastic video, too. It is really, it's very educational from a directing standpoint. I think you did a very good job. Well, well thank you, sir. Thank you. I think you did uh, a very, will... very good job. There's definitely going to be more like that coming. Um, I, I have a, a bunch more uh, videos down the pipeline. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's youtube.com slash C slash culture bop. So you can go there and, uh, and you'll be able to, you know, kind of stay tuned uh, as to what's coming in terms of uh, videos and stuff. Yeah, exciting stuff. Uh, and check out the old stuff, too. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I'm still really proud of that that very first video that uh uh dark souls mega man video um it's uh it's maybe not my best work in terms of editing you know i it was me first starting out but like i think it holds up um i think that uh it could be better but you know it's uh it's pretty solid concept i would love to see one day is Mega Man done as a Dark Souls game? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then just yeah. Robot Master defeated. Yeah, right. Oh, that, that kind of gives me, like... Chills. I like that. I like that. Uh, yeah, so go check that stuff out. I'm available on Twitter at TheBebopMan182, on Instagram at BebopMan182, and I will be returning to Twitch very soon at the underscore BebopMan. Uh, Justin doesn't do any of that, but he does have a newsletter called The Paper Trails. Uh, you can find that. Is it just thepapertrails.com? Or dot org. Dot org. Okay. Okay. Thepapertrails.org. I'm a daily. I look at them through. Yes. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I look at them through the email. I, I get the emails, and so. I never know what the website is. And, yeah, well, if you go to the website, you can sign up for the paper trails. Mm. Real easy. Just look out for a confirmation email, either in your uh, regular inbox or your spam, if you do sign up. Also, if you want to follow me on the socials, at Skyrise 
underscore excellence on TikTok. Don't have much on there yet, but uh, I will be posting thoughts and opinions on certain things, certain things like games, movies, things like that. And as a uh, as a former analyst, I try to bring my analytical mindset to a lot of things that are going on. So definitely stay tuned to that. I, I will be sharing more on that. Um, hopefully, hopefully very soon. Yes. Yes. Um, all right. Well, the last thing, but certainly not the least, if you are looking to support this podcast or any of the other endeavors that we're undertaking as culture, Bob, then go to patreon.com slash culture, and consider tossing us a pledge. Uh, we have some very cool perks, which uh, I'm actually I'm working on getting a a final kind of like uh, well that just almost went into Nazi territory. Holy shit! I was gonna say final solution, but that is whoo, that's a dicey term. Um, I was gonna say how about a last answer? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I I, I want to get like a uh, a more uh, a a better. Uh, uh, I guess kind of foundation for the the perks. Um, so I'm doing some revamping, uh, and and things are going to get better. I I think uh, with with the way that we're going to structure them. Um, but all of that said, once we start hitting our goals, even more content will be on its way. So uh, definitely definitely consider that. Um, yeah, uh, I think. I think that's it. Um, do you have anything else to say? Oh, if you think this job's easy, then you should try chumming some of this shit. <laughs> Look at you quoting the movie. All right. Well, uh, like we said, keep your eyes posted to the socials, and we will see you next time. Until then, goodbye. You're going to need a bigger boat.